Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share how a college dropout went from waiting tables to becoming the owner of a major league soccer team and the most powerful venture capitalist in the healthcare industry. We uncover the incredible strategy that can be used to break into any industry and become a dominant player sharing the stage with top CEOs without any connections or relationships and starting completely from scratch. We share why you don't have to be an expert to leverage the credibility of others, the power of public speaking, what it means to orchestrate, and much more with our guest, Marcus Whitney. Welcome back to another business-focused episode of The Science of Success. Everything we teach on the show can be applied to achieving success in your business life. And now, we're going to show you how to do that, along with some interviews from the world's top business experts. These episodes air every other Tuesday, along with regularly scheduled Science of Success content. I hope you enjoy this interview. Are you a fan of the show, and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we asked the big question, how do you find meaning in your life and work? When you're staring death in the face, life's purpose becomes clear. 
we learned how to harness those lessons to find meaning in your own life and discover a few simple things that you can do every day, starting right now, to increase your odds of living a longer, healthier, happier life with our previous guest, Tom Rath. If you want to truly find meaning in your life, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Marcus. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Marcus Whitney. Marcus is an entrepreneur, author, founder, and co-founding partner in many businesses, including Health Further, Jumpstart, and the Nashville FC professional soccer team. Marcus is the author of Create and Orchestrate, a book for entrepreneurs about living a creative, purposeful life. He also runs the podcast Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe, of which I'm a previous guest. Marcus has been recognized by several business publications, including TechCrunch, Fast Company, The Atlantic, and many more. Marcus, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show today. I love so many of the things you're working on, and there's so many fascinating strategies that we can dig into and share But before we get into any of that, I want to start with the beginning of your career. How did you get started? Because you have a really interesting background, and it's truly impressive what you've been able to build and create. And I want to hear about how it all began. Yeah, so my career is almost 20 years old, and my oldest son is a little over 20 years old. And those two things are connected for a reason. Prior to my oldest son being born, I was sort of out in the wilderness, you know, exploring being a creative person. I was creating music. I was doing a bunch of different odd jobs. But becoming a father was really the catalyst for me taking the development of a career and a skill that would benefit my family economically seriously. And I dropped out of college uh, as part of my creative pursuits. And so when I did seek to get my career going, I needed to figure out what I could do that would not require a bachelor's degree. This was the year 2000. And the one thing that sort of stuck out to me was software development. So I spent time teaching myself how to code. This was before software boot camps or Code Academy Online or many of the things that are going on today trying to help people to move into that career. This was just something that I recognized on my own. And I went and got books and studied and did all the different practice exercises in the books. And over the course of eight months, taught myself enough to be able to get a job as a junior developer at a company called HealthStream here in Nashville, Tennessee. And that really started my career into technology, software, and everywhere else I went from there. It's so interesting. Many of the most successful people that I know are self-motivated learners. And oftentimes, the things that they end up being really successful at are not things that they studied in school or were taught, but they taught themselves. How did that factor into your career and your journey? I think it was huge. I think that very first time that I got hired from Hellstream from a let's call it seven to eight month process of teaching myself how to code, that was a huge confidence boost for me. You know, it really showed me that I could put my mind to something and that I could make myself seen in the eyes of the public of the business world as being worth investing in. And from there, I think I've done many other things that have been self-taught with same sort of effect. And I just think that when you are teaching yourself something, it requires drive. You have to be motivated yourself. You're coming from a place where you don't know much at all. You have to have a beginner's mind. You have to be humble. But at the same time, you know, it's something that you want to do. No one's making you do it. And for me, doing things that I want to do, you know, self-direction, autonomy is incredibly important for 
the way that I spend my time in my life. And so I definitely think learning how to teach yourself something is an incredible hack for how to be successful long term. So today you're a successful venture investor. You're a co-owner in a professional sports team, which we're definitely going to dig into a little bit. How did you go from being a junior developer at a healthcare company to where you are today? Yeah, so it was a long journey, 19 plus years. The first seven years were all spent in software development. I went from being a junior developer at a large-ish company to a head of technology at an early stage email marketing company called Emma, based here in Nashville, Tennessee as well. And that was really the experience. I spent four years there. I was there from 2003 to 2007. And that experience is really where I learned about the startup space and where I learned about managing people and building teams and going from burning cash to making a profit. I learned many of my lessons through that experience. And after the end of four years, the company had gone from five people to about 50 people. And it was time for me to go out on my own and explore entrepreneurial opportunities. So from 2007 till today, I've been on my entrepreneurial journey. My very first company was completely based in the software development space. It was a, an agency that offered an exchange of software development services for equity in companies that we worked with. I really liked working with early stage companies, saw a real drought of technical capabilities in terms of the ratio of founders to tech co-founders, and saw various opportunities to pick up equity stakes and did that, had about four or five clients through that process, ended up really leaning into one of the companies that had raised more money than the rest of them called Moontoast and went on a four-year journey with them. We opened offices in Boston, San Francisco, and this is at the rise of social media marketing, social commerce. So working with Facebook and Twitter in the early days of their ads ecosystem in that whole transition from desktop to mobile uh, and really, really learned a lot about what it means to build a business on someone else's platform. And in parallel to doing that, I was also working nights and weekends with my current business partner, Vic Addo, on Jumpstart Foundry. We launched it in 2009 as a tech accelerator. And that was around the, you know two years after Techstars had launched, maybe three or four years after Y Combinator. So we were one of the first 100 accelerators in the country. And by the time 2014 came around, we were one of 5,000 accelerators in the country. So the market got very saturated very quickly. And at the end of 2014, Vic and I decided that this was the business we wanted to run. We both quit our positions in our respective companies and went all in into Jumpstart Foundry and turned it into a seed stage fund in healthcare. And so that sort of leads up to today. We've been doing that now five plus years. We've got over 80 companies in our portfolio and we're the most active venture capital fund in the healthcare space in the country. That's incredible. And the story of how you broke into healthcare, I find so fascinating. I want you to tell that because you went from this incubator to, correct me if I'm wrong, but with no healthcare focus or you know very few or if any healthcare companies and to the leading healthcare VC in the country what enabled you to break into that industry Yes. So the reason why we were able to break in so successfully is because of geography. 2014, when we had to accept that the market had saturated to the point where we were no longer going to be able to get great deals, we had to think about what did we have as an advantage. Now, if you're in Nashville, Tennessee, 
you have to acknowledge if you're in the venture capital business, you're in the flyover country. You are not in New York. You're not in Boston. You're not in San Francisco and you're not in L.A. And if you take those four cities, you basically have something like 75 to 80 percent of all the capital in the venture capital business. So the rest of the country splits up the other 20 percent. And Nashville is just in that bucket. So we were never going to be the most attractive early stage fund for just any old tech company because any old tech company should be on the coast. But Nashville has a very strong, robust healthcare ecosystem here. Nashville is the home to Healthcare Corporation of America. Most people think about Nashville as music city and country music obviously is, is a huge part of this economy, but the number one segment in the economy in Nashville is healthcare. And HCA, Healthcare Corporation of America, basically invented for-profit hospitals in the United States. And just HCA alone is responsible for 5% of all healthcare provision in the country. So a way to think about that is one in every 20 babies in America is born in an HCA facility. And that doesn't even touch LifePoint, Community Health Systems, AmSurge, many of our other very, very large healthcare companies here. So there was a very robust ecosystem here, great leaders, and Nashville is a uniquely collaborative city where you can make friends and you know you can learn about an industry. And so that intersection of Nashville's community focus and the strength of the healthcare industry was a great place for us to focus. So we decided in 2014, as we left the tech accelerator world and went into being a seed stage fund, we could talk a little bit about the difference between those things, but that we would focus exclusively on healthcare. And spending five years focusing just on healthcare in one of the healthcare capitals of the United States, you can learn a lot. Uh, you can learn a lot about how the market actually works. You can learn a lot about which headlines to pay attention to or which are completely irrelevant. And you can learn a lot about how the government is going to impact healthcare going forward because it is a very interesting market compared to most markets in terms of the amount of influence and power that the government has on it. So we've been very lucky because of where we live and where our business is set up that we could accelerate so quickly in the healthcare space. You had a particular strategy that you shared with me prior to this interview that I thought was an incredible method for breaking into any industry and going from having virtually zero credibility, very few connections, and not being a presence to being a dominant industry presence, starting to shape trends, be on stage with some of the most predominant and preeminent leaders in that industry. And you use this to break into healthcare. Tell me a little bit about that methodology and how it works. Yeah, we kind of backed into this by accident. And now I'll tell you, yes, it is a very good strategy, but it wasn't exactly what we were sort of thinking at first. When we made the shift from a tech accelerator into a seed stage fund, we had one piece of collateral that was left over, which was our demo day. And we knew we wanted to get rid of the demo day, but we also knew the power of convening, of bringing people together to build your brand, to build your network, and to strengthen the chances of your investments being successful. And so we didn't want to get out of the convening business, but we did want want to get out of the demo day business, which is where you know every year you have the companies you've invested to get on stage and pitch. We just weren't interested in doing that anymore. And so we had the idea to throw a conference about healthcare innovation. And it just so happened that Nashville, even for its very, very strong position in the healthcare industry overall, it did not have a healthcare innovation conference. And in 2015, innovation really started to become a topic that all of the leaders in healthcare needed to have an answer for. And so we created the brand Health Further and we threw the first ever Health Further Summit in August of 2015. And to our surprise, the event sold out very, very quickly. 
and it was a smash success. And we had leaders and tons of attendees from all the big companies in town there. And it was great. We didn't get on stage and profess to know anything. We just threw the party. And we invited everybody, and they sort of helped us to understand what were going to be the important topics and who needed to speak on those things. And as we did that, A, we built credibility within the industry. B, we learned a lot. And C, we started to build relationships with leaders in the industry that we would have never had otherwise. Had we gone to these people simply as a venture capital fund saying, hey, you know, we've got these companies. We want you to hire them as vendors or we want you to consider buying them, you know, we would have been laughed at. But by throwing a party and creating value for them, we got to be friends with them and we got to learn a lot and we got to develop our network. So over the course of four years, we threw that event. Last year, we threw our last one, at least for a while, we put the event on hiatus because our network's pretty well developed now. But last year, we had about 1,800 attendees. Half of them were coming from outside of the state of Tennessee. We had 100 people coming from outside the country. And all of this has built our network, has enabled us to better understand what our investment thesis should be, and has helped us to even create a path to globalize our business. I love it. And the power of convening, as you put it, this idea of bringing people together and even the notion of curating other people and the content, the value that they can bring. As you said, especially early on, you weren't the keynote speaker. You didn't get on stage and talk about how amazing you are, though you obviously have started to do that now and and we'll get into public speaking a little bit more. But the power of that event was that you brought these people together and you were the catalyst, though you didn't have to be on the front of the stage and in front of everybody. That's exactly right. I mean, I can tell you in 2015, I didn't know anything about healthcare. So, (laughs) you know, it was definitely not my place to get on stage. By last year's summit, I interviewed Milton Johnson, who was the former CEO and chairman at the time he was the he was the CEO and chairman of HCA. So you're talking about the number one CEO in all of the hospital business in America. And I interviewed him for 20 minutes and I knew what I was talking about. So, you know, it was a big step from where I was in 2015. And the event was a huge part of that. You know, going to the event, programming it, curating it. You know, every time there was another session that was planned, I needed to understand what that session was about. And so I really got a crash course that, you know, I don't know, maybe it wasn't a crash course. Maybe it was more like a college degree because it took four years in the way that the healthcare business works. And now, as you hinted to, I'm now doing public speaking about where the healthcare industry is and where it's going in major healthcare events. You know, last year I keynoted the HFMA annual meeting. HFMA is a 75 year old organization. It's the leading organization for finance professionals in the healthcare industry. And I did a one hour keynote, you know, at that event, you know, five years after not knowing anything about the business. It's an incredible achievement. Tell me more about how you've been able to leverage things like public speaking. And actually, even before we dig into that, you mentioned in a previous interview that I thought was really interesting is that a while ago, you used to think that public speaking wasn't real business or wasn't real work. And you've changed your perspective on that and now see how powerful it can be. Tell me about that shift that you made and then how you've started to integrate that into building your business. Yeah, that shift happened for me when I did my TEDx talk at TEDx Nashville in 2014. I had done a couple of public speaking things before that, you know, really in retrospect, mostly panels or technical talks. I hadn't really done the big 18 minute 
type of TED Talk format before. And so I just did not have enough respect for what went into it. I really didn't. And as any TEDx speaker will tell you, when you are selected to do a TED Talk, you have to go through a coaching process. And so I went in and I showed my deck to the coach at the time and sort of said, this is what I'm thinking about. And I, quite frankly, I was pretty arrogant you know, about it. I was like, oh, I'm going to kill it. you know. And I had this talk that had you know seven different points in it, no good narrative to it. And I didn't really internalize that I needed to have this down. Like I wasn't going to be able to read from slides and they just killed me. You know, they, they just said, A, this is way too complicated. You need to break it down to three simple points. B, like this sounds like something everyone else has said. How are you going to make this unique? And C, you have a lot of work to do in a short period of time. You got four weeks before your talk. And so I spent 24 hours being really mad and saying they didn't know what they were talking about. And then I came to reality and said, they're right. And I have a lot of work to do. I wouldn't go, I went and looked at a bunch of TED Talks online and thought about where I was versus where those speakers were. And I said, man, I've got a lot of work to do because once you do a TED Talk, it's like, it's immortal, right? It lives online forever. And so I spent 40 plus hours committed to working on this talk, you know, writing out an entire script, simplifying it significantly, making sure that I had surprise elements in there, bringing in some pop culture references, recording it and then listening to it over and over, you know, like you would listen to your favorite song. I listened to myself do this 18 minute talk over and over and over again, practicing it in front of multiple people. And then the actual performance, which scared me out of my skin. <laughs> you know, it was definitely now I'm much better now. That was the first time I ever had done anything like that, standing in front of a room of 2000 plus people with the bright lights on you and you can't make a mistake. But it went great. And it really set up the stage for so much of what I'm doing today. It set up the stage for my newsletter, for the book that I've been working on, for a video series that I've done, for just for me even knowing that me telling my story and the philosophies that I've derived from my experiences could inspire and help other people. I didn't know that. And so I now have come to really respect public speaking. It's probably one of the most important things that I do. And from a strategy tactic perspective, if it's something you're good at, not everybody is good at it, but if it's something you're good at, it's an incredible arbitrage of time and leverage. You get on stage, people will pay you often to do it, and it's marketing and it's brand building. And it is a very, very unique thing where you can get paid to market yourself. Most things are not like that. So public speaking has become a very, very valuable skill for me. And I have developed a great amount of respect for it. That's a great frame and a way to think about it, that you're basically being paid to market yourself in front of a room full of people. And as soon as you get off stage, you now have this instant credibility of, Everyone in the room knows who you are and just listen to you for 15 minutes or however long you're speaking. Exactly. It's a pretty big hack, but it's work, right? The bar is high. There are people out there being paid six figures to do it. And so if you're going to do it, you're going to have to work at it. Ted has really changed the game and, and has created an art form around public speaking, I would say, as Ted on YouTube has just exploded in the number of views that a lot of those videos get. You can think about people whose entire careers have been made by Ted. Simon Sinek kind of comes to mind, right? Yep. And by the way, his talk was a TEDx talk. It wasn't even a proper TED talk. I so, didn't know that. It's a TEDx talk that got elevated to the TED level. So, yeah, I mean, I think people don't necessarily take the TEDx stuff as seriously as they should because you're in the TED network once you do it. And if they find a talk to really blow up, 
then yeah, you could get elevated to a TED level. Go take a look at that talk again and you'll see he's not on the big stage. It's pretty low budget actually, but the millions of views don't feel low budget at all. That's incredible. So what advice or strategies would you have for someone who wants to up their personal brand, up their public speaking game? Those might be different things. But you've done an incredible job of branding yourself, of building the Marcus Whitney brand along with building your companies and your businesses. What advice would you have for somebody who is just starting out and doesn't have all of the credibility and the cachet that you do? CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think the place to start is to work on telling your story, and that starts by thinking about your story. The TEDx talk for me was the first time that I actually thought about my story. At that time, it was 2014. So there were certain elements of my story over the last five years that weren't there, but I still had enough to talk about specifically going from waiting tables to being a software developer to being an entrepreneur, sort of that journey that I was on. Now I can kind of add soccer to it and a couple of other cool things that I've done over the last five years. But when I started to think about my story, I started to think about, okay, what were the principles that I knowingly or unknowingly lived by that helped me to achieve the things that I did achieve. And that's where I came up with the things I talked about in the TEDx talk, which even today are still key pillars that I live by, but also that I create a lot of my content around this idea of believing, partnering up and orchestrating, which have become the framework for the Create and Orchestrate book and so many other things that I've talked about. That framework of Knowing your story and being able to simplify what you've learned through your story down to three key points is really money, and anybody can do it. I don't think there's any way that that framework can be saturated because everyone's story is unique. And so as long as you stay authentic and unique to your own story, you can bring your own unique angle to that framework. There's just truth to the law of threes. People understand things in threes. It's just sort of the way that we're wired. And so I think just knowing your story, working on writing your story down is where to start. I want to dig into the three-part framework that you just shared, believe, partner up, and orchestrate. I think it's such a fascinating idea. Tell me about each of those components and how they fit together. Yeah. So I had to think about how I grew into the person that I was and it definitely started with belief. When I was waiting tables, I was working six and a half 
days a week. And during the six of the six and a half, I was working double shifts. And so anyone who's ever waited tables and knows what double shifts is like knows, you know, those are hard days and not just physically hard. They're hard mentally because some days are good when you're waiting tables. Some days are absolutely terrible. You know, sometimes you get stiffed. You've got that break in the day. And, you know, what are you doing during the break? Because you got to go back and work later on. It's really just kind of hard. And when I also had a, you know, one child and my wife at the time was pregnant with another child, it was just difficult to sort of see our way out of it. We were living in a week-to-week efficiency hotel. There was nothing in my environment that I could see that should have given me any belief that I was going to be able to get out of it, especially by way of software engineering. But I had to believe in myself that I could. And so I spent so much time seeing myself as a programmer, putting myself in environments that would reinforce that belief. And I just find belief to be the fundamental human capability that allows us to become things that otherwise we would never be able to become. So that was sort of the first part for me. And then there's been a recurring theme throughout my life of co-creation where things don't tend to happen very well when I'm doing them by myself. And I have to learn this lesson over and over again. I'm learning it again right now. And and I'm about to engage in another partnership or a new venture that I'm working on. And I'm so excited because all of a sudden things are moving quickly again. It is really, really hard to do things by yourself, right? But when you have a partner, you just can get that flow of energy and you get to focus on the things that you're good at and that you love to do. And that other person can focus on the things that they're good at and that they love to do. And there's magic that happens there. And so I saw over and over in my career the importance of partnering with somebody else in order to make something great happen. And then the third stage, orchestrate, is just this idea that ultimately to do anything big, to do anything major, to do anything grand, you have to get a lot of people on the same page, moving in the same direction. This has often been something I've had to do through big events, but I think the biggest example I've ever had in my life of this was bringing professional soccer to Nashville. That was something that required more orchestration than I've ever done before. This was getting people on the same page in politics, in the community, investors, just so many different people had to be marching in the same direction in order to make it possible for professional soccer to come to the city of Nashville. And just whenever you're trying to do something big, this mindset of orchestration is key. And when you think about, you know, orchestration, often you think about an orchestra and a conductor and If you look at the conductor, they look sort of weird because they're up there and they're waving this stick and they're not actually playing any of the instruments. And that's kind of the point, right, is the work of orchestration is not actually playing the instruments. It's keeping everybody aligned and feeding into everybody else so that the collective result is harmonious and successful. And so that is a key skill that whenever you want to take anything you're doing to a grand level, I think is very, very important to be able to do. And so those are the three things that I saw in my story come up over and over and over again. They were just a theme. And yeah, it resonated with people when I did the talk. So I decided to name my book after it. And there's so many things I want to break down from that. Let's start with the story about belief. And it's such a powerful narrative going from a college dropout, a waiter to becoming one of the most powerful, prominent, the biggest healthcare venture capitalist in the country, maybe the world even potentially. And what advice would you have for someone who is in a similar situation that you were in 20 years ago? Their back's against the wall. They're struggling. They don't necessarily see the path forward. What would you say to them? What would you tell them to do? 
The thing that I think was so important about that time, and, and you said backs against the wall, I think backs against the wall is helpful. I think the pressure that's created from having your back against the wall can really push you to do great things. You know, the goal I set, while it did not have a lot to do with the life I was living, it was ultimately achievable. Like it wasn't so outlandishly crazy that it couldn't possibly happen. And that's something that I've learned is very important, which is belief is very, very powerful. It is a critical ingredient in doing anything really, really meaningful in the world, especially in terms of tapping into your true talents and your true purpose for being here. But you have to believe in something that is attainable and achievable. And, you know, it needs to be a stretch, but it also needs to be achievable. So for me, the stretch of going from waiting tables to being a junior software developer at a company, you know, making $45,000 a year and getting a benefits package is a pretty big jump, but it was attainable, right? You know what I mean? Like it wasn't completely inconceivable that it could happen. And I then leveraged that to dare to believe the next thing and to dare to believe the next thing. And so I think over the course of the last 19 and a half years that I've been developing this career, you know, I've probably believed 19 to 20 different things. You know, probably every year I've dared to believe a little bit more and a little bit more. And the success that I've gotten from each belief that worked out was rolled into the next one <laughs> and it provided a little bit of momentum and it certainly helped any debate I might have in my mind about whether or not it was possible for me to achieve that thing. You know, I could always sort of look back at the last thing and say, dude, you did that. You can definitely do this next thing. I think where people get out of alignment with that energy is when they set a goal that is just too far from where they currently are. And it doesn't mean they can never do it, right? Because if you take my whole story and you put it together and you say, this guy was a college dropout who was waiting tables and didn't know anybody in town. And now he is one of the owners of a major league soccer team, right? Okay. So if you take everything out of the middle, that is completely impossible, right? There's no way I can jump from that first thing that I said to the last thing. But if you take all the hops in between, you know, then it starts to make sense and it starts to become more and more plausible. I would have never believed in the year 2000, when I was just trying to figure out how to be able to get into a regular apartment, that I could potentially be a co-owner of a professional sports team. That would have never been a realistic thing for me to think about. I was just trying to take care of my kids. I was just trying to get healthcare benefits, right? But I just didn't stop there. I, you know, once I got that, I was like, okay, great. This is awesome. I've achieved that. Now, what's the next thing I can believe? That's attainable. And how do I build that momentum from the last thing that I did? So I think that's the angle that I see some people get a little bit tripped up on is from where they are and what they want to be, they're skipping steps. Such a great story. And it's time to dig into this. I'm so curious. I think many people's life goal is to own a professional sports team. What is that like and how did you achieve that? So it's like so many other things, right? A, five years ago when the journey started, I never thought this would be the way that it would play out. But I did know there was something there worth spending my time and energy on. So the background to the story is Nashville has been growing at an incredible rate for the last, let's just call it seven years. 
and we had a pro-am soccer team called the Nashville Metros that had been around for several decades. And unfortunately, just from timing perspective, the ownership group had to close its doors. And so Nashville was left with no competitive soccer team to cheer for. A young man named Chris Jones saw that and said, well, that kind of sucks. I would like to start a community-based soccer team called Nashville Football Club. And it's a nonprofit and everybody can pay $75 in order to be a part of it. And let's see what we can do. And he put it out on Twitter. <laughs> so this whole thing actually started as a tweet. And I saw that and I ended up being the 86th person to pay $75 to be a member of this nonprofit. You know, to be completely honest, I was really busy with my own work at the time. And so I stayed tuned in via social. I would email Chris from time to time, but I didn't have a lot of time to go to the games. I was on planes going to Boston and San Francisco working a lot at that time. By the end of the very first season that they played, they were having between 1,000 to 2,000 people going to the games. They ended up making the playoffs. Now, this was fourth division soccer, right? So, you know, there's no TV or anything like that. There's not it's not a lot of money in it. But they had clearly shown that Nashville had an appetite for soccer. And there was the opportunity to develop something really, really great there. So at the end of that season, I reached out to Chris and said, hey, let's get together. We had lunch. And he said to me, look, we had a great first season, but I think this thing needs some real leadership uh, in terms of tightening up the business. Uh, would you join the board? I agreed. Pretty quickly after joining the board, I became the chairman of the board. And then pretty quickly after that, there was an article in our local newspaper that said that a professional team, they were in the third division from Pennsylvania, had spoken to our mayor's office and was looking at moving to Nashville. So that was an opportunity for us to leverage that story and say to the public, hey, if anyone's going to bring professional soccer here, they need to talk to us first. That got the local paper involved, and they interviewed us for a story about that. And that really started the ball rolling on a conversation about how we would take this nonprofit fourth division entity and make it into a professional team. I knew just from my work in business that there was no way that a nonprofit could ultimately run a professional team in America. Just none of the leagues would really support that long term. I also had experience because I had been working in the tech accelerator on how to package something up to raise money around it. And so I shifted my energy to building a pitch and to hosting investor events. And in our very first investor event, we found our lead investor, a gentleman named David Dill, who then was the president of LifePoint Health and now is the CEO. And David brought along a good friend of his, who's also a healthcare entrepreneur, a gentleman named Chris Redditch. And then David recruited me to be part of the ownership group. And within 18 months of me joining the board of Nashville Football Club, I ended up becoming part of the ownership group of the group that went and got a pro franchise in the third division, which quickly became the second division for soccer in the United States, a group called the United Soccer League. Then news came out that Major League Soccer was looking to do an expansion and was going to add four teams to the league. And a group led by John Ingram, who is one of the, let's just call it most successful business families, the Ingram family in Nashville, started that process. 
and we entered into negotiations with John just to unify the bid for Major League Soccer. And John then purchased a majority of our franchise in exchange for us getting a percentage of the Major League team should we be awarded it. And then a year later, we were awarded the Major League team. We were the first city to receive an expansion team. So we will play our first game February 29th of 2020 in Major League Soccer. And that's the story. That's how it happened. The thing I love about that, and this comes back to the concept of orchestration, which I want to dig into a little bit more, is that very similar to the lesson you shared about how your career trajectory, it's all about these individual steps, right? And you can't necessarily see what the end is going to be. And yet each step and each process and coordinating all these different people and all these different relationships opens a new door and a new opportunity. But if you don't take the first step, then you never see the winding path that can unfold before you. It's exactly right. I mean, you know, I would call the first step when I joined the board of, of Nashville Football Club, right? What earned me the right to do that was when I, I guess, paid my $5 to be a member. But the first real step was when I joined the board. And you could not have told me that from the day that I joined the board, three years later, we were going to be receiving a major league soccer expansion team. Like that was not even in the cards. In fact, when I first accepted the role of chairman, I put a message in front of, you know, you have to go to the board and state your vision, right? And I said, we will reach major league soccer in 10 years. Right. You beat that goal. Yeah, we cut that goal in half. And so, you know, did I see this ultimately happening because of the momentum of the city and all this other kind of stuff? Yes. Did I know it was going to happen as quickly as it did and that I was going to be playing the role that I played in it? No. But, you know, getting my hands dirty at the nonprofit level gave me incredible insight that was valuable all the way through to the major league soccer expansion bid. You know, I understood the supporters very, very well. I understood the community. I understood I understood a lot of things, you know, that earned me an opportunity to continue to be considered valuable as a member of the ownership group. And so, yes, and I had to do a lot of orchestration along the way. But yes, I mean, I think that is a skill that there's I think I might have even heard it on one of your shows, just the importance of the skill of synthesizing things and not necessarily being like a specialist in a particular thing, but being able to learn from a variety of experiences and then bring all of those experiences together to create more value than you would if you only understood things in one realm. And that's been something I've just continued to do throughout my life. And orchestrating really helps that because you have to communicate with lots of different people coming from lots of different perspectives. And so while I've never been in politics, I've had to work with politicians, you know, in order to get things done. And so I have a better understanding of politics than I ever would before having had to work with politicians, right? If that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And the analogy of the orchestra is great because... As you said earlier, and this is a really powerful image, the conductor is not playing an instrument. And to me, that's a really important lesson that many people miss when they think about achieving a big goal. They think about executing and, and hustling in the day-to-day of it, but the orchestration piece is such a powerful component as well. Absolutely. The conductor's job is to make everybody else look like a rock star, <laughs> you know, that's the job. And to even 
in real time highlight and signal to the audience. Like I'm not, you know, some of the stuff that the conductor does, I'm not even sure it's really for the orchestra as much as it is to cue the audience pay attention to this section right now, right? Because they're about to go off. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's part of the deal too. You know, I think there's incredible value in highlighting other people and celebrating other people in making sure that two different groups that will be much better together than they will be apart understand how much better they'll be together and navigating, getting them to believe that. And those were things that we had to do, you know, through this process because everyone had their own interests, right? I mean, we all shared a vision. The clear vision was we want to have Major League Soccer here in Nashville, but people are coming at it from different perspectives, right? The politicians owe something to their constituents, you know, different groups of investors want different things. And that's just reality. There's nothing good or bad about that. That's just you know, the way that the world works. And so you have to be able to show people that none of us are going to get what we individually want out of this if we can't make this happen together. And so there will be lots of, you know, compromises and sacrifices that will happen, but ultimately we'll all get to enjoying this greater vision. And ultimately you'll also really get what you're after. That makes me think of another comment that I've heard you make in the past that I thought was really insightful, which was the difference between management and leadership. And I think you and I share a similar perspective. And correct me if I'm misstating this, but I think you once said you don't love managing people. And I'm very similar. I don't like managing people. I love coaching and inspiring and that kind of thing. But the distinction between management and leadership, I think, is really interesting. And I'd love to get your insight on that. Yes. So leadership, I believe, is the highest order in any organization. And it is about things like vision, values, communication, principles, goals, accountability, ethics, integrity. Those are the things that leadership is about. Inspiration, inspiring people. You know, those are the things that make up a culture. Management is an operational function. And I have a framework for the way that I have reverse engineered business because I dropped out. So I didn't go to business school. So I don't have a traditional way of interpreting businesses, but I basically reverse engineered it into eight concepts that I've never seen any business not have to adhere to. And they actually go in order of importance, but they are all critical and necessary. So at the very top of the, I call them the eight core concepts. So at the top is leadership, then finance, then operations, then growth. And I'd be happy to talk about what I mean by that. Then product, then service, then sales, and then marketing. So those are, to me, the eight core concepts that every single business has to address. Leadership is the highest order concept. And management falls inside of operations, which to me is the third highest order concept. And management is about delivering things predictably, ultimately. And that is to all your different stakeholders. So you have employees that are stakeholders, you have customers that are stakeholders, you have investors that are stakeholders, you put forth a brand promise, you put forth a promise of what value you're going to deliver to all of those stakeholders. And management is about seeing to that actually happening. And some management is project management, some management is people management. And in the case of people management, you know, that's a skill set. That's a very specific skill set. Not the same skill set to me as leadership. So I think both are necessary, but I think they often get conflated. They're not the same thing. 
And if you've done management as much as I have and have had sort of the mixed bag of results that I have had, uh, you know what I mean? But you've also done leadership and you've had, you know, a different set of results for that. You start to sort of distinguish between the two and get clear on what you're passionate about, what you're good at and whether or not leadership and management are the same thing. And for me, they're not. For me, I am very, very passionate about leadership and I see management as a skill set that I value highly, but that I am not that interested in personally. I love that framework. And I personally agree with that breakdown and the distinction between management and leadership. I, through my own business experience, also have a very similar perspective about my own kind of strengths around management. But that's a whole aside (laughs) (laughs) that we don't have time to get into because I know we're running out of time. For listeners who want to concretely implement something that we've talked about today, we've talked about a bunch of different strategies and ideas. What would be one piece of homework or initial action step that you would give them to start taking action towards something we've discussed? Yeah. So something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the Japanese concept of Ikigai, just, you know, the Japanese concept of, of life purpose and it sort of falling at this intersection of what you love to do, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can get paid for. I find that to be such a helpful directive framework around how you can really maximize your time on earth. I think about entrepreneurship as a creative palette. You know, sometimes your partner will be the entrepreneur and you will be the creative, right? And you can still have lots of entrepreneurial endeavors, but you're not necessarily great at finance, right? And look, in order to be a really great entrepreneur, you got to know finance stuff. It's pretty important. And so I think thinking about where you fall at that intersection. What do you love to do and what are you good at and what will the world pay you for and what does the world need? I think that process of self-awareness is so helpful for then figuring out all these other steps. You know, I'll repeat thinking about your own story, just really going back and jotting down what's happened to you in your life and you know the way that you remember it and what themes emerge from that process, I think is incredibly helpful. There are so many different frameworks out there for how you'll put together a business. You know, there's the business model canvas, there's the the traction VTO, there's the lean canvas, there's there's just so many different ways to get the thoughts out of your head around how you want to launch a business. But I think the most important things really are centered around self-awareness because it's how you position yourself relative to this thing you want to do and who you need to partner with in order to make it happen and what is going to be your challenge around orchestration. You know, those are the things that I think are really, really important and that I think everybody can do. So my task for everybody would be how do you get more clear on who you really are? The idea that self-awareness is one of the most important business skills is something that I fundamentally believe and in many ways guides many of the conversations we have here on The Science of Success. And it's so interesting to hear that from someone who's been such a successful business person that you have a very similar perspective as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm at this point in my career and in my life. I'm 43. I'll be 44 here shortly. I've raised two children. I've probably learned more than that than I've learned through business. I've had so many failures that uh, have enabled me to have the short list of successes that I'm very proud of. But, you know, 
I'm not undefeated, right? I've got losses on my record. And even in my successes, I've got losses, right? And I think as I look back, it's fine. I learned a lot about myself through those things. But, you know, one of the big things that I learned is I'm not good at everything, you know, and that's okay. Nobody is. Nobody's great at everything. You don't know until you try. I think that you have to be okay with failure if you're going to be a creative entrepreneur because that's part of the self-discovery process is going through those failures. But yes, in reflection, as I think about my remaining time here on earth and especially, you know, sort of the remainder of my 40s and my 50s and my 60s, I want to maximize my impact. And that means I'm not going to spend any time doing anything. I don't think I'm exceptional and uniquely exceptional and management would not be one of those things, right? So, you know, I will manage to the degree that I have to. It's not something that I like doing and I know I have shortcomings in it and I'm happy to accept that. That's totally fine by me. Another great insight that you can't be good at everything and acknowledging your shortcomings is a critical component to being a successful business person. Marcus, for listeners who want to find more about you, your work, and everything that you're creating and doing online, what is the best place for them to do that? MarcusWhitney.com. I would welcome you to come to my website and please subscribe to my email, The Grind. It is, I think, the most important work I do. I send it out every week and it is a very, very personal note for me to you where I am talking about my life and what I am learning from the experiences that I'm having in my life. And then I also sort of keep you posted on things I've got going on, like online content and things of that nature. So just my website and subscribing to my email list is my one simple ask. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, some great stories, some great insights about an incredible journey and some really fascinating business concepts and ideas. Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.